Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Steve Moriarty. G'day, Stephen. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very well, as always, thank you. Uh, so today we are going to do the first two books as part of our top 10 investment books mini-series. So today we're going to pick one book each, Steve, so I'm excited to get this uh, mini-series kicked off properly. Yeah, it'll be good. First of all, it was really interesting because I thought, geez, you know, like I think I was going to say to you, let's make it 10, <laughs> let's make it 10 books. I've read so many books and it was funny because I went back through them and saw, oh, yeah, well, that, yeah, well, that's a contender. Uh, yeah, well, that's a contender too. And it's actually forced me to really think about what are the best books for investors, you know, and, and why are they such a good book? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I was trying to think, to narrow it down to say five books each, it's actually pretty difficult. And then you've got to think, right, okay, well, you know, which were the books that actually had a big impact on yeah, yeah. my journey? And then, you know, which books do I go back to regularly and still reread? You know, which books do you find exciting? You know, yeah. there's, there's lots of different ways you can measure it. So uh, let's kick off today then. So your first pick out of your five books that you're going to run through. So tell us what is your first book and um, we'll come on to the key themes and why you picked it as we go through. Yeah, right. Just on that point, I've basically selected the books based on how I approach the market or investing. And what I mean by that is from the macro to the micro or from the general to the specific. I've also chosen them to try and give the listeners an idea of how we incorporated or how we formulated the eight principles so people could see our thought lines to then develop their own in developing their own sort of principles and philosophy. So the first one, which will probably come as no uh, great surprise, is Robert Schiller's Irrational Exuberance. The first edition was in 2000 and it was sort of fairly famous afterwards because it came out, I think, about three weeks before the the dot-com crash. Um, And it may have been three weeks or three months or so. The title Irrational Exuberance came from a speech in 1996 that Alan Greenspan made when he talked about the market may have been, you know, irrationally exuberant. They mustn't have listened to him because the market went up 100% after that. Schiller's continued to update it. The second edition was 205. And in that one, he sort of talked when he was publicising a little bit more about the housing bubble. And so he timed that pretty well as like the first edition. And the last one was 2015. Yeah, so that, that straight away introduces quite an interesting point then, Steve, because I think uh, when people look at stock markets or property markets or pretty much any financial market, they have a tendency to 
look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, well, you know, from the peak on such and such a day, yeah. you know, and then or, or from the Nadir. But actually, um, even Greenspan's speech there shows that you may well make these predictions on the early side, and it could actually be maybe a few years on the early side. It can obviously have an impact on your ability or otherwise to time the market. But I, the point that Schiller would probably try to get you to take away from that is that while you can't pick these things exactly the idea is to get near enough rather than get caught up in the speculative mania and also not to miss those good opportunities when they come around on the downside yeah yeah the point and it's the one you and i talk about a lot and you hear it a lot which is this idea of which i'll talk about later just in terms of kate though but but people saying oh, you know, if you'd have done it according to the Cape, you'd have missed out on all these returns. And what they don't understand is you can't cherry pick top and bottoms. And that's what people do. So if you'd have got out in the market when Greenspan said irrationally exuberant, you know, people said, oh, that would have been terrible. You'd have missed 100% of the, the future returns. But it's garbage because that's only assuming you sold out in 2000. And again, like last February, Nobody knew it was going to fall 50% over the next two years with the dot-com stuff. So therefore, when you when you draw a line from the bottom of 2002, you're back before 1996. So in other words, you actually didn't lose anything. Or if you did, you lost a little bit of a dividend. Yeah, this is where, yeah, when it comes back to, uh, we try to tie these books back to our eight timeless principles. And this comes back to the point on asset allocation. Uh, people have a tendency, as you said, they kind of make straw man arguments about, oh, well, you'd have missed X percent of returns between 1996 and 1999. But you know, the reality is that investing is not an all or nothing exercise. The general idea is to try and maximise exposure uh, into cheaper markets and uh, to try to minimise exposure to overpriced or overexposed uh, markets at the peak and it's it's not an all or nothing thing it's more like a, a tilt or a counterbalance and also as we'll come on to when we look at uh, the Warren Buffett books you generally look to make your big bets when things are cheap yeah yeah exactly so a couple of ba- background points basically Schiller says irrational exuberance is a psychological basis of a speculative bubble and so what is really the book is themed on is basically the psychological elements of the of the stock market or of, of you know, the, the bubble. He defines bubbles, and sorry, I'm going to read this, as a situation in which news of price increases spur investor enthusiasm, which spreads by psychological contagion from person to person in the process of amplifying stories that might justify the price increases and bringing in a larger and larger class of investors who, despite doubts about the real value of the investment, are drawn to it partially through the envy of others' success and partly through a gambler's excitement. I mean, that's a bit long-winded, but it's it's really poignant, I think, at the moment, because that's exactly what I believe is going on in the US stock market at the moment, um, and in things like Bitcoin and a fair few asset classes around the world. Where I think it's a really good book is that it starts off with a historical perspective, which I think is always really valuable. You know, you really need to know about stock market history and the the market cycles, which Schiller talks about, of course. And he deals with them from both a qualitative and a quantitative 
basis. So he, the structure of the book is he deals with the structural factors, the cultural factors, and then the psychological factors. Then he also deals with the arguments about the efficient market hypothesis and why it's wrong. And that was sort of the big trigger for, for Schiller way back even before Irrational Exuberance was what he was basically saying was if the, if the efficient market hypothesis is correct, then the market should move according to rationality, whereas in actual fact, it doesn't do that. And so what he said was, well, stock prices fluctuate much more than earnings. And if that was, if that was, if efficient market was right, then that wouldn't happen. And so what he did was set out to find alternatives that really explained the market volatility. One of the things that I found was it's so comprehensive. There's lots of facts in it. There's, you know, really simple sort of charts and graphs and that sort of stuff. So from a, a structural perspective, I think it's it's really laid out well. The other thing that drew me to it was, like we talk about in our eight principles, Schiller's, uh, like we divide them, sorry, Schiller's got stuff in there that you think about and he's also got some action stuff as well. And so that, you know, we talk about thought principles and action principles and Schiller's got that in the book as well, which is what I found really, really uh, useful. Yeah, that's it. Interesting then, because as you said, it's quantitative and qualitative. So I think as you pointed out there, it's a really interesting and important point is that if you look at earnings, uh, company earnings over the long term, they tend to be relatively stable. They grow over time. Yeah. But uh, the, the real fluctuations don't come from the earnings as such, uh, much more so from uh, psychology. And um, I guess this is a key theme that will probably run through all 10 of the books that we choose is the psychology of investing and how things tend to swing from overconfidence to overreaction because as we probably all know from personal experience we suffer from what's called loss aversion and you know we tend to feel the pain of a 20 percent loss much more so than we do than we enjoy the gain of 20 percent you know maybe to a, a ratio of two to one maybe so it tends to lead to this overreaction and uh, loss aversion on the downside. And that, that's what tends to drive the market cycles much more so than, than earnings, as, as Schiller points out. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one thing that I remember the first time I've read it, because I've read it quite a few uh, number of times, the first one which always stuck with me and which I always say to people is that as Schiller pointed out the earnings are fairly steady over a long period of time. And what he said was when you look at a PE ratio, the thing that really changes a lot is the P, not the E. That, and then he goes on to show you the psychology of, you know, why the price changes irrationally compared to the earnings. So, you know, overall, he basically provides, he does a couple of things. First of all, he talks about stocks, bonds and real estate, which I think is really good because they're the three basically main asset groups. The best thing overall, I think, is he basically systematically takes apart a lot of the fundamentalist arguments about property, stock and bond valuations, and he demonstrates it with solid evidence from history and psychology to show you how markets can get irrational. You know, I think that's really pertinent today because 
what you hear a lot of today, and you know what you and I talk about so much with numbers over narratives, you know, like everybody who's justifying a wildly overpriced market at the moment is talking about narratives. They're not talking about numbers. And that's where I think Schiller has been really useful in sort of saying things such as this, low interest rates don't mean higher asset prices are justified. And as you know, Pete, that's a common theme across quite a few stock and property markets at the moment. Well, that's more or less the only argument, I think, at the moment, isn't it? It, It's basically, oh, well, you know, interest rates are low. There's no alternative to stocks and therefore stock prices must be high. I think there's probably an argument that runs off that as well about liquidity and the the Federal Reserve. But um, that's pretty much it. There's not much um, debate about historical earnings ratios or the CAPE ratio. There's just a lot of uh, people saying, yeah, but interest rates are low, so suck it up. But uh, I think uh, Schiller has tended to look at uh, periods in history when interest rates have been low and asset prices haven't actually been that high. So uh, the correlation probably, well, maybe not quite as strong as people are making out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the other thing that he talks about, and this was this was one of the first books I read, which was really timely, but he also talked about the, the other factors that, it, uh, that are outside the market. And so what he does is he helps investors understand that the stock market is not just about numbers and slash or the economy. And so he talks about, you know, the importance of understanding narratives. I mean, his last book from a couple of years ago is called Narrative Economics. And he's been heading down that path for quite a number of years, talking more about psychology. As a little aside, his wife is a psychologist as well. So that's probably great dinner party conversations. It's basically a really comprehensive delivery of what makes markets and how they get out of whack due to beliefs and narratives. And importantly, which in most cases turns out to be wrong. I've uh, been through previously your typed up notes on the book and the key themes, they run all the way through all of the asset classes. And the same, yeah. you see there's uh, many of the similar, similar traits and similar uh, biases come through in all the asset classes. What would you say, Steve, from Schiller's irrational exuberance are the key lessons that people should take away in building their own investment philosophy? Good question. Look, it won't surprise you that I think it takes away the eight principles that, you know, we have in our book. And I don't mean that as a plug, but what I'm saying is it it is really one. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm talking about it as the first book, because it's just such a comprehensive assessment and different from another book, for example, if you want to talk about Buffettology, right, which talks about, you know, this is how Warren invests and here's all the, here's all the calculations you've got to do, internal rates of return and return on equity and blah, blah, blah. Schiller doesn't get into that detail, but it's a really great book if you're a macro investor or you, you want a broad overview. And so, you know, he talks about CAPE and we talk about market cycles talks about mean reversion, talks about groupthink and psychology, talks about risk, correlation, buy low, sell high, all of that sort of stuff. So it's it's a really, really good general first read. And I, I will say, Pete, it's a book that I actually read every couple of years because there's just so much stuff you can you can get out of it. And from my point of view, I often use it as a reference book where 
I'll be thinking about, you know, what we were talking about before about interest rates and think, okay, I'll go and see what Schiller said on that. And that's where I looked at it and said, well, there's actually no correlation between interest rates and the stock market or the CAPE ratio. Once you understand those points, it really cuts away a lot of the, you know, the, the bullshit that you hear about stock market narratives and, and leaves it to the numbers. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point, actually. So anyone who's listened to the first uh, 51 episodes of this podcast, <laughs> I think we're on 52 today, uh, would know that we, we talk a lot about the CAPE ratio. And of course, Schiller himself is much associated with the CAPE ratio. Um, I think it's, it's not um, a concept that was unique to him or specifically anywhere, anyone else, because actually Ben Graham talked about something very similar many mm. decades before. And it comes back to this point of earnings being relatively stable over time, but actually what changes is the price that people are willing to pay for each dollar of earnings. So the Schiller PE or the CAPE ratio, uh, it's, a, it's a measure that we look at a lot because it takes out a lot of the noise from investing and it just has a very strong correlation with the expected returns over the coming 10 years, um, certainly in some of the bigger markets. Uh, so uh, Schiller is well associated with the CAPE ratio and the Schiller PE for obvious reasons because it, it ties in with the points he's making in Irrational Exuberance. I think Schiller is also associated with the, the Case Schiller Home Price Index in the US, which I guess he uses for similar purposes really, just to show uh, the movements in home prices over time. And it's just a one way of measuring whether the market is overpriced, underpriced or whatever. So that's based on a 20 cities index in the US. Of course, there's always uh, different trends going on in the different cities, as we've seen in Australia too. But obviously, the CAPE ratio is something we associate a lot with Schiller, Steve. Yeah, I think it's probably, well, as you know, it's our, you know, it's our number one indicator. I think it's not the only one that we use, but it's one of those that I think gives you a really, really good idea about what you should expect from the stock market. And the thing that I really like about it is that it, it gets you to focus on things like the earnings yield rather than just the day-to-day -day movements of the index itself, which, as we talked about at the start, unless you sell, you don't get any of that capital gain. All you get is the dividend and you'll get a bit, you know, you'll get a little bit of market growth. But generally, if you don't sell, then you're not going to get that or you'll get less of it over time in terms of compounding your return. So overall, I would recommend it, you know, to beginners and intermediate investors and even experienced investors just because it's such a good all round book. Yeah, and I think actually uh, another point that sometimes gets mischaracterised, I mean, you, you can actually take uh, the same point on the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. People say, oh, yeah, but uh, even if you'd bought at the peak in 2008, uh, prices would be higher today. And you know that may be true, but the reality is, and this is something that Buffett has uh, shown over the years, you don't look to buy those um, irrational peaks because the yield will be rubbish and yes. uh, there's just, well, there's more risk. And also, I mean, the, you'll just find that the long-term results are just nowhere near as good. And uh, that's where Schiller uh, really comes into his own because he not only talks about the narratives and the psychology, but he also puts some numbers around it. A uh, good uh, recommended read, uh, sorry, listen, actually, Joseph Walker on the Jolly Swagman podcast managed to get Robert Schiller himself onto that podcast that he talked about the history of uh, bubbles, irrational exuberance, and also talked a little bit about Australia today. So that's worth mm. a listen in its own right. So I think uh, you've 
covered there the key themes and lessons. Steve, anything to wrap up on why it's such a great book before we move across to my first selection? No, not really. I think we've, we've pretty well covered it. It's just, it's just one of those books I say to people, buy it in hard copy or, you know, paper copy and keep it close because I can tell you it's a, it's a really great reference book. So over to you, mate, on the, the, Buffett, all the Buffett books. Yeah, fabulous. Well, yes, I've picked uh, five myself. So the first one is actually a Warren Buffett book. It's the Warren Buffett Portfolio by Robert G. Hagstrom and the subtitle Mustering the Power of the Focus Investment Strategy. It's worth pointing out um, Hagstrom has written more than one book. He wrote a, a much more detailed or technical book called The Warren Buffett Way, which looks a lot at uh, how to value companies and some of the uh, the tool belt that you might need to invest like Warren Buffett. This is a slightly different book. And as the title implies, it, it's more about how you go about building a successful investment portfolio that does better than average over the long term. And in fact, um, generates wealth generating rates of return over the long term. Really great book. It appeals to me, I think for a number of reasons, really, Steve, it's very logical and its layout. It doesn't go on for hundreds and hundreds of pages it's relatively concise and to the point uh, also some really enlightening and exciting chapters on the mathematics of investing and one of the things i like in the appendices very clearly laid out is buffett's common stock portfolio year by year in the annual reports where you, you really start to get a sense of the power of compounding when you're compounding at 20 to 25 percent yeah uh, so doubling doubling your wealth effectively every uh, well less than three years at, at various points so um yeah that was uh, that's my first uh, pick steve so uh, how should we go about tackling this one so maybe we, well, we should talk a little bit about the key themes as well yeah i was just thinking is it i, I mean i've read it too but it was a while ago but it's it's sort of the same approaches Schiller's, isn't it, that he talks about a lot of the aspects of the market, not like, you know, a book that's like an accounting book which specialises in the balance sheet and that's all they talk about. Yeah, so we could probably break it up into a few of the key themes. So the, the, there is, as you said, there is something on the mathematics and the numbers. There's also a section on the psychology yep. um, and uh, your old favourite, the Kelly optimization model, Beautiful. which is obviously one of the key principles that we use ourselves in our programmes. Um, I think uh, where it kind of starts out as a book, uh, there's a chapter on the super investors of Graham and Doddsville. And it's kind of um, it's sort of a whistle stop history tour of some of the investors who've achieved outstanding returns. So going back to John Maynard Keynes in his chest fund at King's College in Cambridge, obviously Warren Buffett, um, Charlie Munger, Phil Fisher, uh, Bill Ruane at the Sequoia Fund and Lou Simpson at Geico. So looking for some of the common themes that run through those great investors and what they've done differently from the crowd. And I think uh, it becomes quite clear straight away that value is a key focus. Uh, but also uh, the title of this book is Mastering the Power of the Focus Investment Strategy. And what that really means is placing meaningful size bets on high probability events. And there is some mathematics in this early chapter which basically shows how most mutual funds these days, you know, statistically, they just have very little chance of outperformance. So if you've got 250 stocks um, in a portfolio that you're turning over, well, you've got about a one in 50 chance of actually outperforming because, you know, by the time you nip out the transaction costs and the, uh, the fund management fees, it's just not going to happen. 
Whereas if you have a portfolio of, say, 15 stocks, I mean, straight away, you've got a one in four chance about performance. I think that's just one of the things that comes out of this. But also, Hagstrom is quite keen to point out the importance of after-tax returns and the power of investing in long-term compounders if you can invest at the right point in the cycle. So I guess a number of familiar key themes there, Steve. Yeah, it's, it was different to Schiller because, naturally enough, you know, it, it, it talks heavily about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and, as you mentioned there, Kelly. But ultimately, it's a little bit, it's a really, I found it a really good book because, like Schiller, it covers a lot of areas which, you know, I like because I'm broad and macro type of thing. But like you said, the, the focus part, which was basically choose good stocks, hold on to them for a long time. And you hold them through the up and downs of the market. And that was the one point that drew a bit of a distinction with Schiller, you know, where Hagstrom and Buffett and lots of value investors sort of talk about holding through the drawdowns, whereas you and I often say, well, no, 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 there are times to be in the market and times to be out of the market. And I think Buffett is a little bit like that myself. But when you got you know a five hundred billion dollar portfolio, it's not that hard. It's not that easy to um, move a lot to cash, really. Yeah, for sure. And in fact, um, in the in the chapter on um, the Warren Buffett way, the tenets of investing. I mean, Hagstrom looks at things like the market tenets uh, and valuations, mm. and and also whether you can put a, a some kind of a value on management, and you're looking at the financials. I think if you look at as you said, uh, some of those investments, like a billion dollars in Coca-Cola uh, through 1988 and the 1989. I mean, by 1998, that may well have been a $13 billion investment and 42% of the entire portfolio. But, yeah. you know, it's a little bit different if you're managing tens of billions of dollars as compared to the average investor. Um, you know, you, for one thing, you're a market mover in your own right. So, yeah, again, you know, Wells Fargo, another good example you know, the point that Hagstrom makes here is the the Buffett in 1990-91, when everyone was panicking about early 90s recession, you know, big potential real estate downturn in America. And well, you know, maybe uh, loans could turn bad and a whole year of earnings could be wiped out. And the Wells Fargo share price dropped from uh, $96 to 58. And that was, you know, Buffett's key to say, yeah, okay, but we're looking at the earnings over the long run and the, the valuation of the company on that basis, not just looking at current year. So taking a view on probabilities is a big part of the whole thing, but also placing meaningful size bets on events that are deemed to be high probability. So, yeah, and it's it's, it's nice to see some specific examples and working through uh, the thought processes there. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Kelly criterion or the Kelly model. There is actually a section of the book on that and it doesn't go much into the history unlike uh, fortune's formula it, it sort of mentions briefly the history of the kelly model through ed thorpe and claude shannon and also talks a little bit as uh, you'd be pleased to hear about stephen jay gould your favorite author about, i'm about to um, mention the, that <laughs> yeah with the baseball analogy where are the 400 hitters so if you're not a baseball fan i guess that was a a key uh, at bat average that was achieved quite a lot in in uh, the decades gone by uh, between the wars, but uh, these days very a rare event. And you know, talking about the difficulty of being an outperformer, but some people are still able to manage it. I think the the, the key takeaways are really 
you, you place big bets um, on high probability events where markets are cheap. You take a long-term view, not just from this, the sense of making an investment, but also, you know, it's a long-term game. You know, you want to, you've got to stay in the game long enough to see the benefits because, you know, these days you, you see an awful lot of commentary about, you know, the market's returned 10% this year and somebody's only returned nine, you know, completely missing the bigger picture of the, the long-term strategy. And in fact, sometimes people take an even shorter term view. Uh, the margin of safety is obviously a key a key aspect as well. I think one interesting point that, that I noted in this book, and it, it really is something for property investors to take note of, the, the Kelly optimization model uh, kind of assumes that you don't take on any leverage because there are consequences of taking on leverage. And the thing with the Kelly model is if you're going to maximize exposure you've got to be careful that you don't become a forced seller at the wrong point in the cycle because then the whole model is going to fall over as we know a lot of property investors use leverage because essentially it is leverage that makes your portfolio outperform over time but you've you've got to have a high level of confidence that you're going to be in the market long enough uh, to reap the benefits and not be a forced seller at the wrong time of the cycle so it's well worth the book even though it's a uh, sorry, it's well worth a read, even though it's a book about stocks, even for property investors too, to understand this idea of the Kelly model and just to have a think about the consequences or the implications of using leverage, Steve. Yeah, yeah. It's the same in the stock market, Pete, with, you know, as you know, leverage um, in margin debt. Um, you know, the, the worst thing you want to be is a forced seller um, because therefore you can't dictate the price. Um, the other important point just on Kelly is simply this, that what Kelly said was you've got to remember that even with high probability bets, you can lose. And so if you, you know, I always use this example, you get dealt an ace, right? There's five cards left in the deck and you know there's a 10, a jack, a queen, a king and a six, right? You've got a four in five chance of winning, 80%, absolutely no brainer. You've got an ace. You know, you bet the house and you go and leverage up and bet, you know, all your leverage stocks as well and you draw the six. That's it. It's all over Red Rover. So that's what Kelly talks about also into your point with leverage. But yes, it's very relevant to a lot of asset classes, not just property, but also, you know, stuff that people go on in, in stocks. You know, they borrow against their home equity. I did years ago to buy more stocks um, and those sorts of things. So the other thing that I noticed in the Hagstrom book was basically there was that, that difference about market timing and Hagstrom talked to, or, or quoted John Maynard Keynes and sort of said, you know, there was this argument, oh, Keynes tried to time the market and then he went, oh, my God, it's terrible and, you know, you've got to give up. Keynes was a sort of Buffett investor before Buffett, so to speak. Big stakes, you know, in a few and watch them quick, uh, watch them a lot. Whereas my argument now is the market, we've now got basically about 180 80 years worth of solid data. And we've also got uh, trading, uh, we've got computers, uh, transaction costs are near zero. And so I think market timing, when you consider volatility and also the fact, which I think a lot of people don't see with Buffett is he's got billions and billions of dollars of money coming in and like all of us you you know you put you contribute to your superannuation monthly because you're getting paid monthly buffett just does that with huge amounts of money 
And so therefore he can afford to say, oh, I don't mind if um, Wells or Coke or something drops because, you know, he can buy more because he's got more cash. Whereas a lot of us don't really have that sort of, not the same capacity as, um, as Buffett has had you know, over the years. Yeah, for sure. And of course, there's just so much more information around these yeah. days. I think yeah. when uh, John Maynard Keynes was investing, you'd be lucky to get, uh, you know, an update once a year, you know, from yeah. from various entities. You know, th- these days, there's so much information and things move a lot quicker. Um, I, I think, um, you know, Hagstrom does make a point on lower turnover. He says, you know, move like a sloth because um, you'll get lower transaction costs, but also yes. higher after-tax returns because... Uh, the, the impact of capital gains tax on returns. So uh, one of the things I really like is just how you can look in the appendices and just you can just see the results compounding over time. And it really just shows the power of making a, a select few good investments. I mean, the book value of Berkshire was um, up uh, nearly 25% per annum from, well, for, for more than 30 years, from 1965 to 1997, so almost double the rate of the stock market index. And, and at that rate of compounding, you're doubling every 2.9 years. So uh, you can see why Berkshire has created so many millionaires over the years. Uh, but even just the common stock portfolio equities, uh, Buffett, between 1988 and 97, nearly 30% per annum when the S&P wasn't even doing 20%. You know, So it shows the quite raw numbers, just this, the, the difference that uh, investing uh, in undervalued equities can make and just the sheer uh, power of compounding over time. So I think uh, a couple of key takeaways then is, th- is about thinking longer term, also thinking in probabilities and making meaningful bets. Um, the lower turnover point is probably relevant to a lot of people these days as well because you get daily updates on your screen and it's difficult to to not trade too frenetically. I think it just um, on a concluding point, Steve, I'm why the Buffett approach is not widely copied. I think it's difficult. There is a, an emphasis on short-termism, because, particularly for fund managers, because if they underperform for a year, well, they'll be gone. They'll be out of a job. There is a, a relevant point, I think, for individual investors too, is that um, we all like to think we're investing for the long term. And I think I've mentioned on a previous podcast, you know, we've got um, a property in our portfolio. We've you know, we've got since 1996, you know, but, you know, I'm, I guess maybe uh, relatively lucky and that uh, Heather and I quite aligned on our approach and, you know, our property investments are essentially for the kids. But for a lot of people, it's not just about you. You've got to take your spouse along with you, got to take your clients along with you. Sometimes life just gets in the way. So you can see why a lot of people are drawn towards short termism. Uh, but I would highly recommend reading the Warren Buffett portfolio. It's an exciting read to me because it it just logically lays things out and shows you what the power of just a few good investments uh, can really do for you. I just wanted to, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit sneaky here. Um, <laughs> I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's a book by Stephen Jay Gould, which you talk about, Pete, there. And the reason why is because Hagstrom mentioned it in Chapter 9, um, I think it's chapter nine, and about the where have all the point uh, four hitters gone? Stephen Jay Gould, just to give people a bit of background, Stephen Jay Gould was a paleontologist who died about twenty years ago. Long story, but he'll tell you in part of the book. And the book is called Life's Grandeur, or it's called The Full House. 
It depends on uh, which copy you get. I can absolutely recommend it to every single investor. And it is an absolutely wonderful book because when you, when he talks about statistics and the normal distribution, uh, which is absolutely critical to investing. So I can't recommend it highly, uh, highly enough, even though it's a non-investing book. The thing that drew me to, the, the thing that I drew out of Schiller and Hagstrom was you and I talk about our Three Wells program. And in Well 2, I think Schiller covers the broader indexes. So he does that in Chapter 8 where he talks about, you know, like in not giving away our Well 2 strategy, but, you know, buying country indexes when they're low and getting rid of them when they're high and buying the new ones that are low, which uh, Schiller talks about extensively in Chapter 8. Hagstrom, we take Hagstrom's approach in Well 3 by, you know, where we talk about buying large systemic sort of safe companies and holding them for, you know, 10 or 15 years as they, if they compound satisfactorily. So I like to think we sort of got both areas covered, which I think is, you know, a really, really important point overall. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point, actually. The, the Hagstrom book actually probably most close, closely aligns with uh, Well 3 strategy. So the yeah. good book, Full House, the spread of ex excellence from Plato to Darwin. So it's not yes. not only a book about investing, you're talking about um, how do you find out performance. I think in, in this instance, in the Well 3 style investor, well, you, you should be thinking about stocks as businesses, not just the stock price, increasing the size of investments, and not turning over the portfolio too frequently, wait for the fat pitch. And there's probably two other points to conclude. One is the valuation is a dynamic uh, thing, not a static principle. So that's something that we've talked about in the uh, the previous 4Fs model. Um, it's, um, it's dynamic, not static, but also yeah, wait for the fat pitch and uh, for the big opportunity. So two excellent reads there um, for you this week. Schiller's Irrational Exuberance and also Robert G. Hagstrom, The Warren Buffett Portfolio and uh, a sundry read from Stephen J. Gould. So thank you, Steve, and thanks for joining today, everyone. And next week, we'll bring to you the next two in our top 10 investment books. Thanks for joining. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.